0: Hi everyone, my name is YK, and I'm currently a full-time YouTuber at this programming YouTube channel called CS Dojo. I'm here as a guest host, sort of, and this is a part of a mini-series I'm hosting called Data Science Dojo. Uh, This is going to be a series where I'm going to interview some people about uh, data science applications, as well as how to get into data science. Uh, Today, I have an interview with Jessica Lee from Kaggle. Uh, It's going to be about how she worked with NASA on a project to use machine learning to predict snow melting patterns. So without further ado, let's get started. Great. Uh, First of all, could you introduce yourself for us? Yes,
1: for sure. So my name is Jessica Lee. Um, I'm currently based in Manhattan, New York City, um, and I am a data analyst and product manager at Kaggle, um, which is a Google team. In case you haven't heard of Kaggle, uh, Kaggle is a data science and machine learning platform uh, we have over 3 million users that currently use the platform to do a lot of things regarding anything regarding uh, data science, really, like learning it, participating in ML-supervised machine learning competitions, um, and doing data science projects. Um It's kind of like GitHub, but for data scientists. Um, and I've been working there for about 1.5 years now. Um, before nice. that... Yeah, thanks. Um, before that, I went to undergrad at UCLA and I majored in geography, uh, specializing in geospatial data science. So that involves a couple things like GIS and remote sensing and, uh, classifying, uh, cass- sorry, classifying satellite imagery. All
0: right. Um, so you're both a data scientist and a product manager.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I started on the team as a data analyst. Um, and now that I've been here a little uh, longer than a year, I've also been serving in a product management function for one of the teams at Kaggle.
0: I see. Um, and how did you go from you know studying geography to becoming a data scientist?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I actually... Uh, so... Um, on the, on the books, geography sounds like it has nothing to do with data science. And I totally don't blame people for thinking that way. In fact, a lot of my colleagues sometimes still confuse geography with geology. Um, it's just not a very, um, commonly educated field, I would say, um, to, to the mass public these days. It's a little more niche. Um, but, uh, geography has been in a really interesting field recently where, um, uh, a lot of, I think, like historically geography has been at, you know, when we go back to the colonial era ha- had been about maps and learning about other territories. Um, and I sometimes get the question like, oh, Jessica, haven't all the maps in the world been already mapped? Um, like all the places in the world, uh, what use do we have as geography? Um, but actually, uh, geography is one of the fields where digital technology is really coming in to do something special. So because now we have satellite imagery and we have um, really efficient computing, um, we're able to compute data for geospatial areas in a way that I would say uh, we've never had done before. Um, and so that's sort of what I learned in school, um, taking satellite imagery, being able to run it down to the pixels worth of data and extracting that data, um, throwing it into machine learning models um, and then being able to turn out um, an analysis of an entire area. Um, so that sort of was um, what my curriculum consisted of, um, which when I started applying for data science jobs and data analyst jobs, there was definitely a crossover in skills there. Um, and skills would involve things like Python um, and, and R and obviously like some machine learning as well.
0: All right, so you learn all of those in school basically.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. So although um, undergrad was an interesting time since I didn't get to fully enjoy one major for four years, uh, I definitely jumped around a little bit. Um, I came in as a pre-med and then at some point even thought I wanted to do accounting, jumped around a little bit. Um, but then I found geography, which I really loved. And um, by that point, that was only uh, that was in the last two years of my college degree. Um, so sometimes it felt a little rushed for me. Um, and that's why I always still say I'm in a, um, still learning, um, like many people in data science today, I'm very self-taught. Um, I'm only a year and a, a year and a half out of college. Um, so yeah, the day, the, the journey continues.
0: Right. And, uh, how did you get your data, data analyst or data science job at, uh, Kaggle?
1: Yeah, um, I know they say this a lot, but, uh, networking really is the key. Um, I had moved to New York and, um, I was maybe, uh, my second or third month into looking for jobs. I did not, um, I did not graduate college right away with a job offer. Um, so there was definitely some of that uncertainty in applying to jobs. Not, sh- not knowing uh, what's next for me. Um, my, fir- my third month in, um, I went to a meetup um, at meetup.com. Um, for those of you that might be looking for jobs, I highly recommend seeing if meetup.com is something in your city. Um, they arrange a lot of really cool meetups, particularly in the tech space. You have a lot of tech meetups. Um, and these are all people in the tech industry coming out to talk about particular subjects. So the one that I went to uh, was a meetup up called uh, GONYC here, and it was a lot of people sharing. Um, similarly to my expertise, uh, geospatial data analyses they had done for either something at work or on their own time and things like that. And I met somebody there um, who introduced me uh, to the team, and then the rest is history from there.
0: Right. So you met someone there from Kaggle?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Nice. And I'm just kind of curious. You moved to New York without having a job over there?
1: That's right. Yeah, it was definitely one of, um, I would say, one of the most risky moves I've uh, probably had. <laughs> um, I've moved a couple of times growing up. Um, I'm technically Australian, but I uh, lived in China for some time. And then I came to the U.S. for college, uh, which was in L.A. and then... Um, so I'm I'm accustomed to moving. Um it's not the moving part that scared me, but it was definitely uh the the idea of moving to a new city where I didn't know anyone and didn't necessarily have a network. That was definitely uh a risk uh, a risky move.
0: Right. But eventually you were able to get a job and uh network and everything there.
1: For sure. Yeah, when I think about kind of uh big moments that led me to where I am today, um all of those were essentially risky decisions. Um if I had always played played safe, I feel like I definitely wouldn't have um been where I am today.
0: Right. All right. Uh so one of the reasons uh why I wanted to have you on this podcast today mm-hmm. is because of that you you know the project you worked on with NASA. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, for sure. Um, so, uh, this was a 10 week, um, self-contained research project with NASA. Um, this was last summer, uh, 2018. Um, wow, it's already been a year. Um, so 10 weeks long, I worked with, uh, two other teammates. Um, uh, one of them is, uh, a fresh, was at the time a freshman CS student at Berkeley. Uh, his name is Chen Yu. And Nikki, um, our second teammate who was, or or third teammate, I meant, uh, who was a master's in environmental engineering in Columbia at the time. I think she's graduated since then and Chen Yu is now a sophomore this year. Um, And it was really um, great to work alongside them. Um, I was the project lead uh, for that project. Um, And it was really cool because we all had different kinds of expertise together. Uh, Chen Yu was definitely, Uh, had the software development expertise needed to really productionize the model and build the code behind it. Nikki really had the sort of environmental knowledge that was needed. Um, And for me, I I kind of had a bit of both. Um, So what we actually, uh, so the scope of the actual project was to predict um, water availability in a basin called the Fremont River Basin um, in Utah. And uh, essentially the the context of the project was that um, the National Park Service there in Utah um, wanted a tool to be able to assess how much water they are getting from the river basin every year after the snowmelt season. um, Streamflow assessments were really terrible. They weren't having, they weren't getting really good predictions on um, how much snow that they were going to get this year. That's really important, um, because, uh, so the Fremont River Basin pres- provides about, um, 16,000 acres of agriculture worth of irrigation. And so it was really important for NPS to know how much, uh, water they were going to get so they can make the right kind of water resource management decisions. Um, and so, uh, t- and so things weren't in a really good shape. Um, so NASA wanted our team to build Um, a model for them that could help them predict that a little better.
0: I see. Uh, So to predict those water resources, Mm -hmm. were you predicting or were you trying to predict snowfalls or just snow melting?
1: Uh, Good question. Yeah. So um, it it took some time to really think about um, what our target variable is. Um, The amount of snow that's available can... Uh, be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Um, but in this case, we are interested to know what happened after snow flow, uh, snow, snowfall. So in other case, uh, in other words, we wanted to get stream flow. Um, so we targeted stream flow as our target variable. And stream flow just means the, the flow of water, the amount of flow, um, in a, ri- in a stream or river at a given point. Um, usually, so for this, it was measured in, I believe, cubic centimeters. Um, and there's a stream gauge that measures, um, that amount, um, a couple of times a day. So that was our target variable. And so the understanding was, yeah, the understanding here is that we would be able to predict, oh, at this, at this point of the year, there is this many cubic centimeters of water coming through. And that would uh, be just the right amount of information for MPS to understand more what to do with their water this year.
0: Right. So basically, uh, you know how much snow you had this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to predict how that translates to uh, stream flow, right? That's right.
1: Yeah, and um, this project is definitely uh, like in terms of the, the the data collection, it's it's pretty hefty. So we mentioned that target variable is stream flow. Um, so i guess like the typical machine learning workflow uh, for for a project would be to start off with exploring your data and thinking about what kind of information you have is relevant to this project then uh, next you would want to identify your target variable uh, variable which we identify here to be streamflow Um, the next part after that is kind of the data collection and entering the feature engineering part where you basically wanna uh, collect all of the predictor variables now that you think would impact or help to predict this target variable streamflow. So for us, um, the predictor variable over here, uh, variables here, we, we had several. Um, and I think what makes this project a little more special or, or niche is that we use satellite imagery as um, a lot of the kind of predicting predictor variables. So NASA has a suite of um, Earth observations, and these are the suite of sat- satellites that NASA offers. Um, there's really, uh, I'm sure you've heard of things like NOAA, which is kind of the weather, um, the, the weather satellite. And um, yeah, definitely a couple more there. Um, but there are a couple more that might be less known to the public. Um, some of these include MODIS. Um, That is a satellite that brought us snow cover area as well as land surface temperature information. Um, we also had a couple other variables that were looking, uh, that were recording precipitation as well as digital elevation. And so these kind of variables are all kind of 3D in nature, right? Uh, since you kind of have a spatial element to it. So, um. Right. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, the suite of predictor variables, uh, which is a lot of computation um, because these are all kind of images, pixels. Um, It's computationally very expensive to go through all the pixels and do all of the calculations. Um, But yeah, it was a lot of data, uh, but really good predictor variables um, to help us predict string flow.
0: I see. Uh, How much data was it?
1: Um, so from MODIS to, uh, so let me, I'm trying to think a little bit. So we had MODIS, which gave us two kinds of information. So like two, that's uh, two variables. Uh, Persian CDR, um, these are all just satellite names. Uh, Um, Persian CDR is for precipitation. So that's three. We had LIDAR, which is digital elevation. We had prism, which is air temperature and temperature lapse rates of six. Then we had. Snow tell sites. Um, this is not satellite imagery at this point. This is point data. Um, so these are weather stations that have some kind of specific data. And what they had was what we call daily snow water equivalent. Um, so like eight or nine different variables. And this was daily information over, I it's been a year since the project now, but I want to say it was over a two to three year uh, time range. Um, so that's a lot of data, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, if you think of it um, as you, if you think about like what our final data set must have looked like, uh, it was about 13, 14 columns worth and just uh, three years worth of, of observations.
0: So that might be like hundreds of megabytes or a couple gigabytes?
1: Uh, definitely into the gigabytes, um, especially when you're processing the satellite imagery data. Um, so to explain that funnel a little bit, what that looks like is so you have your satellite that's recording information. And the way it records it is it's an image um, of some part of Earth. So um this satellite might take uh, for example, um, land surface temperature of the US um, once a day. And so what that looks like is when we read in that the raw data is an image and it has pixels every single pixel is corresponds to some um dimension of ground on earth and every single pixel correlates to one particular temperature um in that pixel area so after that um you want to turn out you, you got to think about what you want to do with every single pixel here um but a common thing to do is to maybe average it or just uh, filter out some of the pixels to, uh, to only include pixels that matter for, uh, your analysis. So, um, what we did here was, uh, so we had a lot of information, um, and we read this in through Google Earth Engine. So we would download the images through Google Earth Engine. Uh, then we would write up a script that would, um, do all that data collection I mentioned earlier, grab each pixel, grab the land surface temperature off of each pixel, um, append that to every single day. And it. what we decided to do was to average it instead. Um, So we had such a large, so the Fremont River Basin is really big, and we wanted to be able to get a kind of rough, like average land surface temperature um, for um, kind of, different areas, but we didn't want to go down to like the pixel by pixel, because you can imagine that's pretty um, intensive. So we divided the Fremont River Basin into kind of three geographic regions. And then we sort of aggregated the pixelated land surface temperature information so that every region, so uh, so uh, one of uh, every uh, every region, which there were three, had an average land surface temperature per day. <laughs> Sorry, that's like, I know that's like a lot of information. I, I hope that kind of made sense. Feel free to clarify.
0: Yeah, it makes sense to me.
1: Cool. Okay, perfect. So we had that All for right. land surface uh, temperature and a couple other things. Mm-hmm. We had to kind of redo that uh, calculation, but also for snow cover area. So we had those three regions, right? We would, um, that one didn't have to be an average. Um, since land surface temperature made sense to be an average snow cover area, we just wanted a total area. Um, so every day, uh, we would calculate the pixels. Um, so snow cover area, uh, you would get a picture again and same thing. You would have pixels that indicate there is snow and no snow. Um, and then we would add all, add up all the pixels that had snow, um, to form that, um, area of snow cover, um, every single day.
0: Right. Um, so that data had information about like which pixels are snow and which which other pixels are not snow?
1: Yeah. So I think this is kind of, the, uh, I'm going to geek out a little bit over how satellite images work. Uh, this is, uh, this was really the part of geography that really drew me to the major. Um, I had not thought about how scientific it is. It's, I call it like scientific photography, essentially. So um, when we take a picture of anything, um, we're essentially recording um, some kind of information, uh, right? And um what that means for satellite imagery and digital photography is that every pixel has some kind of electromagnetic spectrum information so uh, for example um so 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 every uh single um thing on this earth reflects um uh, light in some kind of way across the electromagnetic spectrum right and um one way you can digitally identify snow is by that kind of reflection spectrum So snow is white. It also has chemical components in it that results in it, um, uh, having a very distinct kind of signature. And, um, and so, um, when you go through each pixel and you basically are saying, I want to find all pixels where the signature looks kind of like this curve. And, um, it'll be able to, uh, calculate that, um, off of that electromagnetic spectrum Um, it's important to note that it's not a uh as simply as i say it's not like a like a binary kind of thing like you can reclassify it to say that you want it to be snow or no snow but what usually happens is um a continuous you have a continuous spectrum of kind of um how much like uh of, of that kind of calculation of snow so like for example, um, an, an area um, might have like an 80% match with that snow um, kind of uh, electromagnetic signature, um, but it's not like a 100% kind of confidence. Uh, so it, yeah, you basically end up with like a spectrum of like, this is most likely snow, this feels less like snow, then you reclassify that a couple of times. So you have a uh, kind of a more clear calculation of how much snow do we actually have here.
0: I see.
1: Yeah. Um, and, um, that's kind of, um, common. So, so, uh, this is particularly to snow. Um, maybe a way to help visualize this a little, uh, another example that's, um, a little, uh, clearer is, um, people can calculate how much forest is in an area. Um, so plants, plants have a very, very distinctive, um, electromagnetic signature. Um, Because it turns out that plants actually absorb um, visible light, uh, like visible um, light near uh, the infrared zone, um, but they reflect near infrared. Um, So you have this formula called the NDVI formula, which stands for, I believe, Normalized uh, Difference Vegetation Index. And that's a mathematical calculation of basically, like, does this object on this ground emulate this signature of um, reflecting um, more near-infrared light and um, and others? So it looks at that kind of wavelength info, um, and then it'll be able to be like, oh, this is definitely a plant. This is probably not a plant. And that's usually how people calculate um in a given spatial area um how how much greenery is there
0: okay uh so you know back to this analysis you mentioned Mm -hmm. that you had uh seven or eight uh image-like data i think
1: uh let's see i think like four four so we i think you're right Uh, i think it's like that we have eight uh we had kind of um 10 10 to 11 um, predictor variables. And out of those 10, four of them was uh, satellite imagery.
0: I see. Uh, So there was image-like data and non-image-like data, too?
1: Yes, that's right. So non-image-like data is uh, the other kinds would be just simply tabular. so, uh, things like that could, uh, so, uh, an example would be, uh, the snow tell sites I mentioned. These are weather stations that provide daily snow water equivalent, which, um, I believe is the daily snow water equivalent. I had to learn a lot of like very like weather, like science kind of, um, terms to this. Um, but I believe daily snow water equivalent has to do with like how much, um, melted snow you have in a given time period. Or like, no, I think it's the amount of water contained within snow. So like how much water can this piece of snow make essentially? <laughs> um, and that's tabular information. So daily, uh, so you would have daily tabular uh, info of uh, daily snow water equivalent here. And um, I think something, uh, I mean, also not to mention our target variable is definitely tabular as well, right? So daily, um, right. you would have daily stream flow there
0: okay uh so basically you had a bunch of image-like data and tabular data as your input variables
1: that's right and And then um, we would feed that through the model to uh, we would separate all of our information uh, into training versus test data um so again I, i kind of don't remember the exact dates but if let's say we had three years or two years worth of data. Maybe only the last six months counted as our test data. The other one and a half years was training, we're training data.
0: Right. And what model did you end up using?
1: Um, So we ended up using um, the LSTM uh, model, uh, which is a neural network. LSTM stands for long short term memory model.
0: All right. Uh, I've heard of it bad. I'm actually not too familiar with it, so could you explain how it works?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, at least I'll try to explain how it works. Um, I uh, neural networks um, have many different variations, and LSTM is is one of them. Um, it stands for recurrent neural networks. And to be honest, I'm not really the best at explaining it. Um, but I will try. Um, I. It would be it'd be nice if we had something like a blackboard, but it's okay. Um, we'll deal with this. Uh, so, from from a high level, um, recurrent neural networks are basically neural networks, but the catch is they have loops, so they're really good for um, time forecasting problems where you have something that happened earlier that impacts your analysis later. So, um, for example. Um, in, in our project, um, snow melt is uh, definitely has like a lag, a time factor to it. So just because today my satellite showed that this was this much, there was this much snow cover area, it doesn't mean that that day for stream flow, you'll get something yet, right? So there's some kind of time element that you need to um, take into place and uh, recurrent NNs um, have that memory component that I uh, that is really good um, for capturing that so relate so in terms of relating yesterday's variables to tomorrow's stream flow or whatever other factor um, that's where it really shines um, there's a really good TDS article I read that um, explains LSTM neural networks really well down to the math um, I'm pretty sure if you just search in LSTMTDS on Google, you'd be able to find it. Um, but I remember the analogy used in that article was um, akin to a human reading an essay. So, for example, you don't, when you, um, when you read a sentence, you understand uh, each word, you understand a sentence based off of, like, the earlier words you read in the sentence. So... Um, there's some kind of continuity there you have to look at the bigger picture and you have to look in a specific order to understand um, everything else that's happening Um and uh, yeah I think that was kind of the analogy that was used which I thought was really good so you don't really so uh, uh, in traditional and then um, would sort of um, I guess in this um, example be more of um like you would throw you would you would think, but then you would throw something away and then think from scratch again. Um, you don't necessarily relate between different kinds of events. Um, so, uh, let me think. Uh, traditional NNs uh, might have an... Ex- uh, so, let's see. Traditional NNs on a forecasting problem. So, let's talk about, say, a movie. So, I think this was also the example used in the article. Um, Say you want to classify what's happening at different points in a movie, and one can understand that an event might happen because of something else that happened earlier. Um, but in a traditional neural network world, um, it would be unable to use that kind of reasoning about previous events, or for, or in this uh, out to, to speak outside of the analogy. Um, to really be able to extrapolate the kind of prediction information of early events to inform later events. But in an RNN kind of scenario in this movie, it would be able to say, oh, because of this event that happened earlier, um, this is what's happening now. So. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of like the really high level um, like kind of explanation I can, I can give without uh, being able to like write down the kind of the loop structure. Um mm-hmm. so yeah. I hope I hope that uh it was somewhat helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. Cool. And uh for your analysis, did you try any different models?
1: Yeah, um with any kind of problem, um I'm you know I gotta admit I'm not a very advanced data scientist yet. Um, pretty early in my career, what I tend to like to do is to just trial the standard models first. Um, so you might be able to think about the scope of your problem and start to categorize what kind of problem is it? Like, is this binary classification? Are we doing or, or is it multi-classification? Is this a time series? Is this tabular? Is this uh, sen- um, sentiment analysis? Things like that. Um so in this case it felt like pretty obviously we're going for a time forecasting problem um but um i i would exp- i would imagine like a more advanced data scientist might be able to look into the features that were engineered and kind of be able to come up with one or two ideal models uh for me i just get on scikit learn and i just try uh what um, are some industry standards uh so it's always nice to try a simple regression in this case. Um, so we tried that. Then we uh, fed it into an SVM for funsies. Um, and I think for SVM, we specifically tried the radial basis function. I'm totally not sure if I butchered that. Um, but I think it was like RBF, RSF, something like that. Um, we, we tried that. Um, I just remember that that particular SVM is usually um, good for uh, classification problems, but I had definitely spoken to a couple colleagues when I was working on this project, and I was just really asking their advice um, on the model to be used. So that was one that came up. Um, and, uh, of course, XGBoost. So, yeah, those are just, just to name a couple that I tried out.
0: Sorry, what boosts?
1: Oh, XGBoost. Okay. Yeah, XGBoost is really yes, popular um, these days. XGBoost. It's um, mm-hmm. it's um, if you go on on Kaggle or just look at the like data science community at large, uh, it the joke kind of is like throw it into an XGBoost, uh, see what it says, because it usually provides uh, like reasonably accurate baselines at at the very least.
0: I see. So you tried regression, SVM, XGBoost. Mm-hmm. LSTM.
1: Yeah. Mhm. Oh, and actually, sorry, before we entered the LSTM world, um I actually tried uh just um an ARIMA model first. So, when I feel like um time forecasting is definitely still a field of ML that is growing, like it's 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 getting better. Uh LSTM was a really big breakthrough for time forecasting, I would say. Um, but I think like traditionally, when you think of time for costing machine learning, the first thing that comes up is an ARIMA model. Um, and, uh, so it's known for, um, being able to, uh, do some of that time to time relation, um, that I mentioned earlier in LSTM to be able to take past information to, uh, and then kind of relate the, the events there to pile up into predicting the future. Um, however, that one was, it did not yield very accurate results, um, in my opinion. Well, I just don't quite remember what the loss functions were like, but it, it will it just wasn't great. Um, and what uh, what actually helped me make the breakthrough for LSTM, um, was I found a similar, um, a similar paper online. Um, um, this, uh, person had was looking, um, I believe also into, some kind of geographic analysis. I don't remember what he was analyzing per se, but um, it was time series over like satellite information. So I uh, and then this person was using LSTM, and I actually got in touch with that person um, on LinkedIn, and he was able to um, then he he sort of like listened to my problem and was like, yeah, I think LSTM would be good. Um, and lo and behold, it worked out. So really big credits to him.
0: Nice. You tried ARIMA too yes um, um i'm guessing that lstm outperform everything else
1: yes by far um we yeah we were definitely experiencing like either inaccurate predictions or just overfitting really hard so that by the time we were um we were testing the model on the test data it was just kind of um really off or at the very least it just felt like the predictions were very static like um, snow fell, uh, snow melt, um, is definitely has kind of like an ebb and flow look to it. And it felt like, well, all the models could understand the ebb and flow, but they couldn't necessarily capture a difference in rate of snow melt throughout the years. So like something about this region is, um, the snow melt had been melting earlier and earlier, um, in this region, the past 17 years and stream flow was also decreasing. Um, so in, so in relation to those kind of trends, it felt like a lot of the models couldn't really capture that, even though they could capture the basic kind of like up and down trend, but by how much was kind right. of where they were struggling.
0: I see. Was the L- LSTM model able to capture that?
1: Yeah, it was really, um, it was really great. It was, um, so. I remember in kind of the last year of data, uh, there was definitely more of a decrease in stream flow. It was really subtle um, when you, but if you kind of smoothen out the curve, you could see it. And the LSTM was the only one that kind of captured that curve.
0: I see. And earlier you mentioned something about overfitting.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, that was with the earlier models. Um, and I think, I want to say it was the ARIMA that actually overfitted the most. Um, and, um, you know, when, when when data scientists, like, when we talk about these kind of models in terms of overfitting, um, it's, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge how much feature engineering was done and, like, hyperparameter tuning was done to make sure that our our, it's not, like, the data's problem, like, it's not the Models problem, but actually, like the data wasn't optimal for that model. Um, in the case of the ARIMA, I think by that point it was just time wise. We had already gone through a lot of models, and they weren't being they weren't super successful. And I had just heard about the LSTM, so I think that we did not spend as much time on hi- on hyperparameter tuning our variables to fit the the ARIMA as well as um, we did for other models. Um, so that might've been like one reason why it just really overfitted and we didn't really try to, um, reinterpret the data, um, for the model.
0: Okay. So, um, as you went about, you know, trying to solve this problem, uh, trying, uh, different models, mm-hmm. were there any like particular challenges that you faced?
1: Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, definitely lots of challenges here. And I think, uh probably a common response, but feature engineering uh, is definitely a big pain. Um, feature engineering can be, and I think like what made it extra compli- uh, complicated for this project um, was kind of the niche knowledge that one needed to understand things like temperature trends. So um, I, I did a couple of like really simple um, ML like classification projects on satellite imagery in school. And what made this one particularly challenging was kind of understanding how snow worked. So, um, you know, within satellite imagery, um, I, I talked a little bit about it earlier. I hope it wasn't totally nonsensical, but it is a lot of information. That's why it can. That's why it is a whole major. People major and specialize in it. My kind of specialty was looking into water resources um, in school, and it was surprising to me how different water and snow behave. So I had to learn a lot of random things about snow. So for example, um, for this model, we're, predict- we're predicting streamflow. One might have this intuition to say that we wanted to, we should try to find a parameter that considers the amount of speed of snow melt down the mountain. So just because there's snow cover or that it rained that day um, might not capture very well this the, the, this kind of intuitive understanding that snow might take some time to melt on some days, but might melt faster on other days. So we were trying to zero in on if there was a variable that kind of did that. Um, and that was like uh, a lot of um, weather science. So... We found, I've learned, I learned a lot of terms I didn't know before. Um, one thing was the, I think it's called daily degree factors. Um, so we were thinking that daily degree factor, I might be butchering it, but it sounds something like that. Daily degree factor uh, to, we were thinking maybe that could help us. Um, but it turns out that it wasn't really there. Um, it measures Uh, I think like something about the heat um, in a given area um, and how that impacts temperature in the rest of the region. Well, you know what? I'm not going to try and guess what it says, uh, what it means. So daily degree factor. Uh, We tried that and it just it it didn't work. Um, It just wasn't really there. Um, The model if you did some correlation matrices, the model wasn't even considering it much. So we took that out. Um, But, um, so after a couple more like debates and trying to figure out what's happening, um, it turned out that air temperature and temperature lapse rate were best. Um, And uh, temperature lapse rate is kind of the amount of, uh, like the rate at which temperature differs as you go down some sort of gradient or elevation. Um, so that was able to capture, um, that kind of like, how fast is the snow melting kind of question. So that was pretty complicated.
0: I see. Uh, was there any other challenges?
1: Um, yeah, I would say, so this is not, uh, like specific to the machine learning model, but a general challenge for this project was actually when we were going into the project, um, we weren't even, um, we, uh, so like the, the project, um, had kind of a recommended scope for us and that actually did it did not suggest to us to do machine learning anywhere for this so we came in and the problem was to predict stream flow and there was some kind of suggested papers to go about and like NASA also had some like other frameworks um, that they thought we could maybe base our work upon um, or expand or just apply to this situation specifically and my team and I, uh, this was like a really big challenge as a project lead especially since i was kind of the one um verifying our progress and making sure that at the end of the 10 weeks we had something to give to nPS um but we looked into the model on matlab um and it just was not really it felt like it like it, it could maybe work but it wasn't what we wanted to do um and, and i think this speaks to kind of a lot of like this world of changing kind of traditional programming, going into data science and uh, just in general, trying to apply ML more um, to things around us. So this model was a made in like a traditional manner, meaning that it was a lot of values and algorithms were kind of hard coded specifically for whatever um, the model was built for. Um, I remember the model was actually built for a Chilean, like, water resources project. And so, this model, um, when looking at how to apply it to ours, it just kind of felt like we basically would have to recreate the model at this point. All of the weights, the algorithms, everything was suited for that specific climate in Chile. Did not, it was not the same for our river basin. So, um, all in all, it was kind of, uh, this, this was a bit of like a stressful point for the project. Um, we were three weeks into our 10 weeks and we had, uh, I actually did not really know MATLAB until then. So we like learned MATLAB ASAP, looked at the model, felt like it just wasn't really the right approach that for us or at least the approach that my team and I wanted to take. Um, and I had to kind of escalate this, um, to, Um, hire like my, my manager at the time and others to kind of say that we feel like we want to try something else. Um, naturally, if you're going to change the scope of your project, you should definitely come with a proposal. So by the time we had spoken to these people, my team and I had already thought about doing machine learning instead. We came up kind of with the scope of the project. Like I told you earlier. We were kind of like, we would do these, these, these kinds of things, get this, this, this kind of data, and this kind of model should work. Um, And it took some convincing, um, especially since I would say some people in the organization, you know, machine learning is still definitely a pretty new field. Um, um, It's, I think we talk about the field, um, like when you're in tech, that's kind of all that everyone's talking about. But when you extrapolate this to the real world, You're talking about people like the government or like national park agencies. Um, This is something they're not super familiar to. And it's going to be a process that could take years or generations um, to be able to install this kind of like ML model and help people understand how it works. Um, And so machine learning efficacy is definitely important uh, to me. And in this project, we were able to advocate for that. And, um, in the end, obviously they let us, uh, do it. I was really happy about that. And we had the last seven weeks, um, to turn this out. Uh, so that was a, I would say like a contextual challenge, like not specific to the model, um, but for the project. Um, and I think there's actually a lot of deep meaning behind how we were able to, you know, talk to people, educate them on ML, uh, convince them that it'll work and then actually made it work.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so this model that you end up with, Mm -hmm. it's not in production yet, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, we, at the end of the 10 weeks, we presented, um, the code to our partners at National Park Service or MPS that I, as I've been saying, and, um, they understand the deliverable, uh, needs to go through kind of a, like, NASA kind of, um, software code review of patenting process. Uh, it might be too much to call it patenting, but yes, NASA did need to review the code, um, before officially releasing it. And, um, we're actually still waiting on that to happen. So yeah, technically our partners don't have it yet, which is a little depressing to think about. <laughs> but um, definitely soon.
0: Right. And I'm guessing that uh, it's going to be used to predict uh, this year's snow melting patterns?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, snow melt. Well, I guess in terms of 2019, that's kind of happened already since snow melts in the spring. So we're already past spring for 2019. But if they were to get the model later this year, then that would definitely uh, set them up for a success to predict for next year.
0: Nice. Um, I guess I have, you know, just one more question for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, anything specific, but is there anything else that you want to add to this conversation?
1: Mm, I feel like we talked about a lot of the project today, actually. (laughs) Um, but I guess all in all, um, just it was a really good experience. Um, it was really unique to be able to Do, um, a a kind of very self-contained ML project, but also notably something that's productionized. So, um, productionized ML, meaning that someone's actually using my output at the end, right? So a lot of, um, ML, um, we're still developing a lot of things. Um, it, you, you have all of the geniuses. Um, with PhDs in academia or in industrial research fields in companies, um, researching ML and researching kind of the next big thing and the next way to optimize. So we're still, you know, we're essentially still in a, like a a very kind of like growing phase with ML. And one thing that I personally, um, always think about is how much, like, how much longer will it take for us to actually implement? Some of this when we trickle down to the kind of democratization of ML, right? I guess I, I can kind of say that. Um, when will the common person be able to learn um, what ML is? And they may not be in tech, but they work somewhere that could definitely use this. Um, that's something that I'm personally passionate about to help more people learn about ML, which really kind of aligns with what my job does these days as well, as people use Kaggle to learn ML. um, And that kind of helps us to go towards a more data-driven world. Um, So that was something that I felt really happy to be able to do in this project, was that I wasn't just coming in to research ML, but that there was already an end use case for it. And you had partners at the end who were really excited to be able to predict their snow melt And it made me feel really excited day to day as opposed to an academic kind of or um, more traditional um, kind of machine learning approach where you're kind of just working on a model and then who knows what happens to it later, even if it's really good.
0: Right. Okay, great. Uh, Thank you so much, Jessica.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, YK. This was really great.